0: Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. So as uh, was just introduced, we're starting a new series today at Sovereign Hope, working through the gospel of Luke, and just kind of give you a roadmap of where we're going. We are starting Luke today, and it's going to sync up with our Advent series and take us through our Advent season. And then we're going to take a short break in January and February for a new kind of sermon series that is going to be kind of like a grand opening sermon series for the building that walks through what we do on Sundays and what a biblical church is supposed to look like. And then we're going to pick up at the end of that back in the Gospel of Luke. And this sermon series will certainly be the longest sermon series that I have preached here at Sovereign Hope. And this is for a number of reasons. First, there's perhaps no New Testament author more influential than the man who we'll meet in a little bit, named Luke. Luke's account of the gospel is not only the most robust of the four uh, gospel accounts in scripture, but it's actually the longest book in the New Testament. More than that, Luke's gospel is really only part one of everything Luke wrote. Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, And he also wrote the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts. And they're meant to be uh, together. They are two volumes of one unit. And that's something we'll circle back to in a bit. And when we think of New Testament authors and we think of New Testament theologians, if you've been around the church for a while, we think of the illustrious writers like the Apostle Paul who wrote his many numerous letters and tomes to the church and professed justification on righteousness and faith alone. Or maybe you think of John the Beloved, the tender-hearted, loving apostle of John who wrote a gospel, wrote three letters, and the book of Revelation. But the single largest contributor to the New Testament, and subsequently much of our biblical theology and what we know to be true of Jesus' life, is Luke. Together, the book of Luke and Acts make up over 25% of the New Testament, This is a book and this is a man whose writing has been preserved by the Holy Spirit so as to act as a glacier, which slowly and subtly shapes the landscape and thoughts we have on Jesus, on God's plan and his promise, and on the church as a whole. But secondly, this book is a perfect follow-up to our series in the book of Proverbs, Of all of the Gospels contained in Scripture, Luke is the one that deals the most with ideas of wisdom and morality and a number of topics ranging from marriage to finances to justice to eternity to parenting and work. And so as we concluded a book which pointed towards the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ, now we come to a book which shows the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. Just as we'll see in the coming weeks, John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, so Proverbs, in a sense, has prepared the way for us to see the wisdom of Jesus, which touches every area of our lives. And I promise you this, by the time we're done with the gospel of Luke, we will all be uncomfortable and we'll be better off for it. Because whatever presuppositions you have, he's going to deal with it. And yet, most importantly, we need to study the book of Luke because we need to encounter the message of Luke. Contained in these pages, these 24 chapters, is not merely history, not merely ethics, not merely masterful literature, but contained in these pages are the events of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. In light of this, we're going to examine Luke's prologue this morning, and we're going to brace ourselves for what Luke is trying to accomplish We live in a world where motives are often concealed. People are calling you from 406 numbers who couldn't even point out Montana on a map. We don't know why people want to talk to us when they want to talk to us, but Luke is up front. He is very clear with what he wants to do with the conversation we're gonna have together over the next couple of years. And what he wants to do is he wants all of us to have certainty regarding Jesus Christ and all he accomplished through his sinless life his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection. And so what we're going to do this morning is look at three points by way of introduction. We are first going to examine Luke's gospel. What are we talking about when we're talking about the gospel? What is Luke talking about when he talks about the gospel? Then we're going to see Luke's methods. How is he writing what he's writing? And then lastly, we're going to be introduced to Luke's hope. That's his hope for us as readers of this book. So let me read once more for us our opening seven verses of the book of Luke. Verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So perhaps you'll notice, kind of distinct from a couple of the other Gospels, here in this prologue, in this introduction, the word gospel never actually shows up in our text. And that's true. And yet this book is called the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel according to Luke. And so what is the Gospel? What do we mean when we call books Gospels and say there's four of them And how does that relate to other things, which if you're at Sovereign Hope, you realize we tack the gospel onto all the time. The gospel becomes an adjective. It becomes a noun. It becomes a verb. It becomes whatever we want it to be in the church. We love the gospel, but what in the world are we talking about? One author surveyed his diverse neighborhood in the metropolitan city that he lived in, and he went around asking his neighbors what they thought the gospel was. And among the things they responded, that the gospel was a style of music. The gospel is the truth that Jesus loves you. The gospel is hope. The gospel is living a good life. Now, some of those things are not the gospel at all. Some of those things are included in the gospel. But actually, none of those things is the gospel. So, what is the gospel? The word gospel simply comes from the Greek word word, evangelion, which is super fun to say. Say it on your way home and you'll sound sophisticated and you can impress people at work. This word simply means good news. And its context is it's a word that was often used in a military sense. When a messenger from the field would come back and declare the evangelion of surrender, of victory, of the war being over. And when it comes to good news, there's often three ways the church uses the phrase gospel, all of which kind of make up the ecosystem of how we understand the good news. And so I want to touch on that because we will see, and just in shorthand, if you're around our church, you're going to see people use this word, and it's important to understand what we're saying when we say it. And so first, the gospel, the good news, is often presented as a summary statement, one newspaper headline of a major newspaper on May 7th, 1945 declared, German war over, exclamation mark. It was a summary statement. It gave you the biggest piece of news you needed to know that morning. And we have a summary statement for the gospel at our church. Perhaps you've heard us say this before. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God. It summarizes the scope of the good news. Another pastor has a helpful summary I heard this week where he, has, he said the gospel is that God is our maker and that sin is our failure and that Jesus is our savior and that faith is our answer and that new life is our pleasure. It is a summary of the good news when we say things like, Jesus saves sinners or Christ died for me. Those are wonderfully true summaries and we should embrace them. But in order for us to have certainty on this statement, we also need to know the truth behind it. As good as it was to see the headline that says, German war over, the question you should have is, how do I know? How do we know there's certainty behind this? And that's to say at some point, a summary statement of good news, when we talk about it through a biblical lens, is rooted in a theological statement. When we talk about the gospel, the gospel includes all sorts of good news. It includes good news about how you relate to other people around you. It contains good news of how we live in the world around us and the hope you have in that world. But ultimately, the good news of the gospel is a theological statement regarding the good news between theos, that is the Greek root for God, and you. The gospel requires God to act and us to respond to it. And we must know the truth of that theological statement if we want to embrace that good news. For instance, this past week, we celebrated Veterans Day. And we are so immensely grateful to gather here in America, free of threat, because many men and women gave their lives for you. But what makes the giving of Jesus's life distinct from the giving of those other lives? That requires a theological statement. In fact, in the book of Luke, Jesus shares a story of many people who have claimed to hear the summary statement that Jesus saves. And yet they come to Jesus and Jesus rebukes them because while they affirm the statement that Jesus saves, they had no idea the role Jesus actually played to be the Savior. They wanted the summary without the substance. And see, this is more than just a nitpicky kind of theological thing that pastors who went to seminary want to deal with. This is a fight for your hope that you might have certainty. You know, do you have a theology that in the darkest nights, in your weakest moments, in your most painful sorrow, that you know for certain That though you were a lost sinner, now you are redeemed and loved by the king of kings. That is not something you want to know vaguely. That's something you want to know intimately. Paul gives us an example of a theological statement like this in Corinthians where he speaks of the gospel, but then he goes on to define it. One thing you'll notice is lots of people know the word gospel, but very few people know the gospel. This isn't a new problem. This is an old one. We see this here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. He's using it there as a summary statement. That I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That is the summary of what the gospel does. What has it done? It has saved them, and they stand in it, and they received it. And even more than that, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. But now we get to the theological statement. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. So here Paul is not simply reminding people that the good news happened, but he's reminding them of how it happened. How do you know that you're not gonna hear the buzz of German warplanes over your house? He says, Jesus died for sinners. As the long prophesied Messiah of God, according to scripture And even though he died, he rose again and now lives eternally. The mechanism which makes all the good news of the gospel good is that Jesus really took the weight of our sin by dying the death our sin deserved, but then rose up to give us new life in him if we simply come to him in faith. The gospel is not ultimately the good news that you can find a way out. The gospel is the good news that Jesus did everything for us and we come to him in faith. It's not the good news of what you could do or have done. It is the good news of what Christ did for you. And that's the gospel. And there's only one which can get confusing when we say, Luke is the third of the four gospels. What does that mean? Are there four gospels? Are there four truths? Kind of like a pick your own ending that you get to choose. This is the gospel that appeals to me. And this is the one I believe in. And the rest of these might be true for you, but not true for me. No, there's only one gospel, one good news of who Jesus is and what he did to call sinners to repentance. But this is where we encounter the third usage of the word gospel. Gospel. And this is what we mean when we say the gospel of Luke. This is the gospel as the story of good news. I have four children in my house. And if you were to ask all four of those children to describe their mom, you would have three wonderfully coherent stories and one that you will never know what she's actually saying. And that is our almost two-year-old. And yet, while Owen's depiction of mom is distinctly Owen, does that mean that now Adley's depiction of mom is false? Or does it mean that perhaps they're observing the exact same truth, the exact same events, and they're describing it differently, all true from different perspectives? This is what the four gospels are. It's written by four men describing the same truth, but from angles which are keen or illuminated by the Holy Spirit to them. Those four gospels that we have in scripture are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are not four different accounts of different news. They are four different accounts of the same good news of what Jesus did to save sinners and restore us to God. And if those summary statements like German war is over, or if you get to the actual true statement, how do we know it's over because they have signed an armistice agreement, then These gospel as stories are the headlines that follow where you get all of the drama that unfolds. It is watching the film which depicts the battle uh, of D-Day, which was so influential to get to that miraculous headline. But these stories aren't simply stories that are heard. They're stories that demand our response. The goal of Luke's account is it kind of like dipping your toe in a river that looks peaceful? That as soon as you dip your toe in, you realize it's pulling you somewhere. That it's moving more powerfully than you ever thought it could. And this is really important because what's interesting is there is a noun form of that Greek word evangelion to basically say this. It is the gospel. It is this noun, this thing. And that descriptive noun is used zero times in the gospel of Luke. But there is also a verbal form of the word, of the root, evangelion. And that is used more than any other gospel. And so in this story, Luke doesn't just say, the gospel is blank, blank, blank. Instead, at every turn, people are gospeling The gospel is being proclaimed. It is being unfolded. It is being uh, done, said, and lived out for all so that we might be caught up in it. Luke doesn't simply want you to know the theological answer to the gospel. He wants you to participate in the proclamation of it and to have your entire life be changed by it. Luke's gospel takes us places. In 1863, President Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, which declared all slaves to be free. That event really happened. It was really declared. But the problem was that most slaves weren't given the opportunity to hear the good news, especially in Texas, which was at that place the most geographically isolated region in the South. But one day on June 19th, 1865, General Gordon Granger reached Galveston, Texas. He stood on Texas soil and he read General Order Number Three, which said, the people of Texas are informed that in in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This echoes with a similar sentiment that Jesus himself reads from scripture in application to himself in Luke chapter four, where Jesus says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When those slaves heard that order declared to them on that day, do you think they simply acknowledged the truth and scrolled as if it were a headline on Twitter? I understand that knowledge, I affirm it. What's my fantasy score? Now, certainly, the struggle had not ended. I can't imagine they went peaceably to their masters and said, Turns out I'm free, see you later. But what it certainly did is it changed what they expected. It changed the way they thought. It changed their goals. It struck at the very core of who they were as they now knew without a shadow of a doubt, regardless of what is said on the outside, I am a freed man. How much more does the gospel which Luke will proclaim to us change the way we think? the way we live, the way we love, and the way we act. It is good news, not just for those who are held in captivity to men. It is good news for all who are in bondage to sin, all who are enslaved to their passions, all who feel oppressed, neglected, and empty. This message is not simply a story that makes for good tales at night. This is a declaration of freedom for all who believe it. And that declaration changes things and it takes us somewhere. But how? How does Luke intend to do this? Well, this is where we see Luke's methods. Read with me again once more as we examine our second point, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So here we get a handful of things, nuts and bolts for the gospel of Luke in this passage. We see who Luke is. We see what he is writing And to whom he is writing. It does not appear that Luke was an eyewitness of Jesus' ministry. But what Luke is, is a historian. And more than this, we know from the book of Acts that Luke followed the Apostle Paul on many of his missionary journeys. When you read the book of Acts, there are these infamous we sections where Luke is saying, we went to such and such. We were treated as this to show that he was eyewitness not of the events of Christ, but eyewitnesses of the growth and expansion of Paul's travels in the early church. We learn a little bit more of Luke from the words of his friend Paul in Colossians 4, verse 14, where we see Paul say this. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. Demas gets left out here. No one goes to that verse to learn about Demas, but here we are learning about Luke. And here what we see is that Luke was a doctor, a physician, a close friend of Paul, beloved by Paul. But at some point he set aside his office and followed Paul on the trail of gospel expansion. Why? Because the gospel takes you places. Do we need more proof than that? Luke was a physician, which then, like now, was a place of esteem. But this gospel, which Jesus proclaimed, is not only attractive to those lowly fishermen who must have a miserable life standing out on the wavy seas with salt-stained lips. They obviously want to leave that. But here is the physician, Luke, and yet when he hears this wonderful news of freedom... He lays aside his practice and follows Paul on a life of shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonment and hardships. And go read 2 Corinthians and see all that Luke might have left his comfortable private practice to participate in. Why? Because the gospel took him there. We don't know if Luke ever stopped practicing medicine. That hasn't been given for us in scripture. But what we do know is if he practiced it in his later life, he practiced it for the glory and expansion of God's kingdom. Because the gospel takes you places. As Luke followed Paul, we see here that he met other apostles, other eyewitnesses. He read what we see in verse count, or verse one appears to be other accounts of the gospel which were being written. And in light of all of this information, what does he do? He sets out to write for us an orderly account. His means to do that, we see also that he was following these events closely for some time past, meaning he investigated these things. He checked his references. He did the work of a historian. We are reading true events, true events, which include miraculous things, And there's kind of two ways we approach truth in our world today, which is new. The one is the old kind of remnant of uh, the Renaissance movement, where all truth must be scientifically verifiable. We want facts and we want dates. I would say that's probably the majority of how we approach truth. And there's goodness to that. But there's also a new way in which we view truth. And that is to say that all truth is relative And who cares if it's actually true or verifiable by names, dates, and science, so long as you believe it to be true. And there are aspects of humility about that, which is good, but it also is off base. But here held up for us is truth according to scripture. C.S. Lewis describes something called chronological snobbery. And it's the intention, or it's the uh, idea that whoever lives in the present age look backs at the, looks back at those who lived previously to them and we lord ourselves over them, that we are more rational, we are more reasonable, we are more enlightened. And there are all kinds of historians who are peers of Luke of this day, who are still viewed in the course of history and in the academy as credible, authentic witnesses Of this day, but none of those sources have gone through as much scrutiny as Luke the historian. And yet Luke has come out and endured and proved to be credible in the midst of it. You see, we seem to adopt this fairy tale mindset that people who lived long ago were stupid, (laughs) that of course they believed in God and miracles, they didn't have any science. But here is Luke the physician who did doctor things. He investigated. He knew that leprous men didn't go off into the wilderness and come back cleansed. He knew that lame people don't miraculously stand up and walk. He knew that dead people don't come out of the grave. And so he investigated. He did the work. He checked his sources. He assembled his accounts. And I've included here, and we're going to start here next week, actually, verses 5 and 7 for a reason. And that's because if Luke's goal is to lead people astray with something he knows to be false, it's a really dumb thing to tie it to names and dates that people can easily check. But here, Luke wrote regarding a real period of time in the days of Herod, king of Judea, of real people who could be verified by their 23andMe profile and their birthrights, of Zechariah, of the tribe of Abijah, and of Elizabeth, of the daughters of the sons of Aaron. And he didn't write write to a utopian society of this fairy tale land where everything was good. He wrote in a real period to real people in the midst of real problems, that Herod, though he was king, was a puppet king, and that Zechariah and Elizabeth, the righteous before God, were barren and without child. Famously, one professor at both Oxford and Cambridge by the name of William Ramsey set out to disprove the Bible, or as he called it, the Book of Fables. He dedicated 25 years of his life to studying and participating in the work of archaeology in both Asia and in the Middle East with a goal to unturn the historicity of Scripture. And yet every spade that was unturned in that earth turned to affirm and prove what the Holy Spirit so inspired men to record in Scripture. And as he set out to disprove Scripture, God struck him and he was converted and realized his need of a Savior. You see, Luke and the other gospel writers go to show us that faith is not something we choose to believe regardless of what is true. Faith, biblically saving faith, is something we believe because it is true. And how can we know it? Because God has spoken to us. Because Luke wrote to his friend named Theophilus. And that has been preserved by the Holy Spirit for us to come and read. We have this account. Luke wrote this not for his own sake, but for the sake of us. For sake of primarily what appears to be an educated Greek friend by the name of Theophilus. His name simply meaning lover of God. But why did Luke write this to Theophilus if Theophilus already knew the gospel? Maybe you're wondering that today. As soon, maybe you come to church and you're hoping we dig into those later chapters of Daniel that everyone's a little scared about and we're gonna read the Bible with our newspaper in hand. Maybe you want some of the fantastic, gritty, good news of Revelation. Maybe you want to get into some prophetic literature which deals with real issues like racism and oppression. And we start the Gospel of Luke and you think, I've heard this one before. Guy lives, guy dies, guy gets out of the grave. Good story. But Luke wrote this book not to people who didn't believe, but to those who did. Why? Look at one verse four. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is our final point this morning, Luke's hope. Luke wrote so that Theophilus may have certainty regarding the things which were accomplished. Now what's lost in our English translation is back in verse two, we see that there are ministers of the word. That Greek word for word is the one we often think of, logos, logos. Is this message, this truth statement, and they were ministering it. But also what is there is when he says concern, in verse 4, concerning the things you have been taught, that word translated things in your English translation is that same word, logos. So Luke is writing to people who have received the word, the logos, and we see more than that. The word which was being ministered in verse 2 was verse 1, the word that accomplished something. He's de- describing a narrative of all the things that have been accomplished among us. Luke is reminding us again that we might have hoped that this word, that this message is not simply a word and is not simply a message but it is a word which accomplishes something. It is a word which does something. It is a word which engages and involves other people. It is no mere fairy tale or dead doctrine. It is the word of God which worked in history by changing the lives of men and women. Jesus accomplished things. The events of the gospel which we come to believe accomplish something in us. The story, which was shaping the landscape in Luke's day, was shaping the world because it was accomplishing drastic, real, and transformative things in the life of everyday people like you and me. In 1931, Aldous Huxley penned a pessimistic and fictional look in the future in his book called A Brave New World. And while this book was science fiction, it was written out of the real anxieties of his day. Less than a decade prior to him writing this, World War I had ended. And then you see in 1929, a couple years before he, actually a a year before he wrote it, two years before it was published, the stock market crashed in the United States. The U.S. was thrown into the Great Depression. Britain's economy was tanking in just two years, two short years. A young man by the name of Adolf Hitler would become chancellor of Germany. It was a time where the world was uncertain and anxious. And so too sat Theophilus. Most scholars date the writing of Luke as something that happened in the early 60s AD. And during that time, the most security you could have came from a source of two places, either your racial identity or in your political identity. But here, Christianity was growing in the midst of, of a growingly diverse church with a dead king and an increasingly hostile culture. All of the places of security and belonging, all of the things which historically brought a sense of peace had been pulled out from under this young church and perhaps this young man. Tensions arose as Christians claimed that the word accomplished in Luke chapter one was God's long promised promise to bring about the Messiah, to bring salvation to Abraham and his children and to be a blessing to the nations. And as Gentiles believed that, anyone who is a non-Jew and they came to Jesus and they went to the synagogue, they were met not with, met not with acceptance from the Jews, but from hostility saying, you don't belong here. These are our promises, not yours. But even more than that, persecution arose. It was increasing. It would meet ahead by 64 AD with the first major conflict with the Emperor Nero. More than that, they had this king who was supposed to liberate them from Rome, and he died. And then he rose again and we're waiting for this like awesome sci-fi Marvel scene where the risen savior comes back and kicks down Rome's door and stops bullets with his arms. But what does he do? He leaves. (laughs) He leaves his people seemingly without the savior they thought they needed. And here Luke wrote in the midst of this culture, to a man who wrestled to find acceptance in the church as a Gentile, who wrestled to find peace politically as he followed Jesus and saw persecution mounting against him and his fellow believers. And we might find ourselves in the midst of similar anxieties today. Politically, culturally, religiously, the globe is changing. In the U.S., Christian practices, which were once lauded and held to be good, are now being opposed called hateful. The days of comfortable Christianity, for better and for worse, in church I do think there are aspects of that which are better. But those days of comfortable Christianity are waning. More than that, there are many quote-unquote Christian churches who are claiming to serve the same Jesus without any of the baggage and confrontation that the Bible presents there are churches who seek to flatten Jesus into a specific political party or policy agenda. They flatten it to a specific aspect of social identity. In order to find peace in power or among people, they mold Jesus into a God of their own understanding, clinging to what they love about this message and muting the parts that are distasteful. And for those who look at this, not as our word that we get to shape and mold as we want, but as the word of God, which stands over every one of us, we might look out into this world and say, is this doing anything besides making my life difficult? Is this accomplishing anything besides making me feel uncertain? What comes next in my story? What comes next when the waters of baptism steal from their joyous waves and flatten to what seems to be silence? Luke writes this message of Jesus into the heart of that tension. We might not know what comes next in our culture, but Luke writes so that we might see the promise of God to bring salvation is not a dead promise. He writes, so that while we look out and see kingdoms rising and falling, we might take heart for the kingdom of God is drawing near. And how do we know that? Because it came in Jesus Christ. It lived among us. It died for us. It rose as we too will rise. And he is preparing a place where one day we will sit we might not be able to look out into our world and know what tomorrow looks like, but Luke wants to show you, you know what the gospel will look like. You know the good news is not up for grabs. You know the church is not liable to defeat. You know your salvation is not under threat if you stand in the good news of this Jesus. The gospel proclaimed in this book is the good news that God keeps his promises to real people people in real periods, even in the face of real problems. And Jesus, through this book, is calling you to him. We see this in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, where Jesus says this, but he said to them, I must gospel. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. To trust in this Jesus is to place our trust in the only thing in this world, which is certain. And this is so important. Because Jesus throughout this book is going to look at everything you take for certain in your life and he's gonna punch a hole in it. (laughs) In the book of Luke, Jesus inverts the status quo on every page of the things which you think bring you comfort or power or peace. Jesus pulls out the rug and we see this as we see the heart of our savior unfold before us where he loves the unlovable, touches the untouchable, speaks to the unspeakable, reaches the unreachable. All the while while discomforting the comfortable, humbling the arrogant, rebuking the wealthy and defeating the the powerful, so as to clothe those who stand in him in the power of resurrection life. Jesus, his message and his salvation challenges us, but for those who have eyes to see and hearts to hear, Jesus saves sinners. This book is meant for the weak, the lost, and the lonely. There's this wonderful progression that we look at when you hold Luke and Acts together. It's geographic. Actually, the book of Luke has this geographic breakdown. And it begins in the rural areas of Galilee, which mean nothing to anyone. Who cares about Galilee? But it progresses downward to the cultural and religious power town of Jerusalem. But there in Jerusalem, in the waning chapters of this book, it is not with Herod, king of the Jews, that power lies. It is not in the hall of Pontius Pilate who carries with him the edict of Rome. The decisions are made. It is on the outskirts of a city where a homeless man who claimed to be king was crucified as a criminal, that true influence came. And as the book of Luke, or Acts, picks up, this gospel, which was accomplished in Jerusalem, progresses to the world. This gospel takes us places. This gospel does things we can't imagine. This movement of God's promise, this salvation and hope for God's people is what Luke invites you to. And the only way you can join is not simply to hear the good news that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, but it's to participate in that by faith and repentance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you did not stay silent but acted in history to save us. We thank you that when we realize our weaknesses, either by seeing the reality of brokenness in our world or the reality of sin in our heart, that you show Jesus as the one who brings us back to God, who proclaims liberty to the captives. And Lord, as we look at this book of Luke, we ask that it brings us places we never imagined, that it brings out repentant hearts in us that we thought too dangerous, that it moves us to people who we thought would never move, that it makes us love like Jesus loves and makes us hope like Jesus hopes. We pray all this in your name. Amen.